0: Hey, before we start, we're excited to announce that we have a new sponsor. Coffee with the Greats is brought to you by Bixby Coffee. So for season two, we're bringing you the complete package. We've already been bringing you the greats. Now Bixby will bring you the coffee. Hey, this is Miles Fisher. Thanks for listening to Coffee with the Greats. Today, we sit down with Jeremy Zimmer, the co founder and CEO of UTA, one of the biggest talent agencies in the world. The company grew by representing many of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Today, much of their success comes increasingly from creating profitable businesses and brands around the biggest stars in social media, in esports, in music, art. And overseeing all of that is Jeremy. Compared to most of the other titans we've spoken with on this podcast, Jeremy is almost entirely self-taught. That is, he admits to struggling a lot as a young kid. He was aimless. He flunked out of college. He was even stabbed in the stomach at work, all before he was 20 years old. He shares with us how he started to develop a new toolkit for life when he started working at the William Morris Agency. When he created a training program at ICM, he started mentoring an entire generation of agents. And when he co-founded UTA, he started changing the model altogether. In this conversation, Jeremy shares much of the wisdom he's learned over his 40 years summiting the top of Hollywood's power structure. He talks about what makes a great agent, what he thinks the purpose of celebrity is, and how keeping commitments is the key to a life well-lived. This is a really good one from a man I deeply admire. Thank you for listening. If you're new, check out some of the other living legends I've spoken with in past episodes. And if you're an OG to the pod, please do leave a five-star rating and subscribe. That helps more than you can imagine. I really appreciate it. But for now, brew up a cup of coffee and enjoy this intimate episode of Coffee with the Greats with Jeremy Zimmer.
1: Um, I was born in uh, Santa Monica, California, right down the road. My father, when I was born, was a young television producer working on Leave it to Beaver. I think he was employed at Universal as a TV producer, worked on Leave it to Beaver and my mother, the car and shows like that. And my mom was a burgeoning author. She had written her first semi-autobiographical novel called With a Cast of Thousands. And she was developing some notoriety as a young author. Uh, By the time I was in fifth grade, we'd moved down to Santa Monica Canyon and I was going to Canyon School. My parents had gotten divorced at that point. So I had some... uh, A perfect day would look like I would... First of all, I would always... It would not be at school. So I would leave school... (laughs) And I would always walk down to – there was this little liquor store right on the corner of Pacific Coast Highway and Entrada Drive where we live. And I would get a, I would have a quarter and I would buy 20 pieces of licorice and a Coca-Cola. So whatever the perfect day is, it usually started there. Okay. And a lot of the days, I would go down to the beach and we had those rafts back then like the – you know, with like four tubes kind of connected to each other, those red rafts. And I would either yep. go rafting or – Boogie boarding on those old styrofoam boards and, you know, spent a lot of time down there with my buddies there or getting in, you know, doing other, you know, kid kind of shenanigating kind of things.
0: You had Mm -hmm. siblings?
1: Uh, I was an only child, which was a problem for my sister. I had a a younger sister, but uh, she was two years. She's two years younger than I am.
0: And would you say that there were many happy days like that? in your youth?
1: You know, I, I don't remember my youth as being that like happy and carefree, you know, cause you know, my parents were divorced. So there's the drama of that. And my mom was struggling with her own, you know, psychopharmacological issues. It was the sixties. So that was sort of de rigueur. Plus she, you know, wanted to be a, she was a writer. So you, you know, you need to be, you need to get all fucked up to be a writer, I suppose. And, uh, so it was, a, it was a little bit tumultuous. It was not the yeah. typical sort of Eddie, you know, sort of leave it to beaver kind of a vibe, you know, kind of, it, we, you said you were happiest when you were outside of school. You know, I had always, I was a diff, I had a difficult time in school and I had a difficult time doing my homework and doing what was, I was supposed to do. I had a difficult time paying attention. I'm sure today I would have been diagnosed as having ADD or ADHD and I would be medicated and. You know, I'd be sitting in the front of the class, probably doing really well or something. I don't know. But, you know, back then they didn't really do that. So in, in the fifth grade, I went and saw a guidance counselor and the guy said, oh, you know, you're you're what we call a classic underachiever. And I was so sort of grateful to be, oh, OK, I, I am this thing and I'm not the only one. And the fact that I can't pay attention and can't seem to figure out the basics, huh. you know, like every school, every semester, every school year, I would start off with so much hope and I would have a new notebook and I would put all the little binders perfectly and the little dividers and the orange and the blue and Spanish and history. And I would all, I'm going to real this year,
0: this is it. I'm
1: going to hold my shit together.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, uh, I never did, yeah. you know, by, by invariably by like October, I had forgotten about take carrying the notebook around. It was too much hassle. Mm-hmm. And so I would just rip out the homework and put it in my pocket. And, you know, invariably by November, December, I was just, too far behind to catch up and sort of writing the looking forward to the next semester to get a fresh start.
0: So where, what was the first place where you kind of felt like you belonged then?
1: When I was like 14 and a half, I got a summer job working at a gas station, Huh. maybe 15. I was like somewhere around there, maybe 10th or 11th grade, but before I could drive. And, uh, I got a job working at a gas station that summer and it was the greatest thing ever. Huh. And it was totally like I could totally focus on it and figure it out and Excel and I could Excel and I could handle all the different issues. And I learned how to you know, change the tires and do an oil change and, you know, change a fan belt and, you know, all the basic stuff of mechanics I could figure out. And I could also figure out how to handle people, you know, so I could keep, You know, that was back when, you know, Mm -hmm. everything was, there was no self-service. Everything was full service. And I could handle the people and the credit cards and the gas and keep everything moving and hustling. I was good with the customers. And And
0: it was right off the PCH. It was in Malibu. Right off the PCH at Coral Canyon. It's
1: still there. Did you have, was like the boss a bit of a mentor or was there like. No, no, no. The boss boss was his old, the old guy who owned was this guy, Cal Bargainer, who was from Louisiana. and He, you know, always had a char, was always spitting and And like that yes. and then the head of truck guyro was a guy named Orville who lived in like a little hotel or motel up the street uh, and he had no bottom teeth and he smoked he smoked uh, Winston 100s that's when I started smoking cigarettes cause nice. all the guys smoked cigarettes so I was smoking mm-hmm. cigarettes because I thought that was cool so I'm like this little 14 year old kid long blonde hair smoking cigarettes and working in a gas station. I thought, this is fantastic. This (laughs)
0: is is where
1: I feel at home. This is good. Yeah. I'm on a path.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So, and then what, how, from, from gas station in Malibu. uh, So, what happened was, is I wasn't going
1: to, I wasn't going to school uh, very much at all. I was getting straight F's and this is not my senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm like, you know, pulling like an F. Yeah. GPA and yeah, and I'm not doing well at all, and I'm not going to school. And my dad gets a call from the school, like you know, he doesn't seem to even come here anymore. We don't know what's going on. And my dad was like, "What the hell's going on?" And I live with my dad, and my stepmother, and my step and his and what was my stepsister, and uh, I was there was a lot of friction between me and my stepmom, and a lot of friction, just a lot of friction. I was a I was a very difficult kid to handle. Uh, yeah. You know, if you ask me. You know, if you asked me what time it is, I would lie to you. Hmm. You know, I just could not. I just didn't play by the rules. I didn't know what the rules were. I wasn't going to play by them. And I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. And it was a lot of, you know, as I look back on it now, I can't imagine what I would do if I had a kid like me. Hmm. Like, you know, I just can't imagine because you just have there's no like place where you there's no level set where here's what. Here's what we're trying to aim to. There was no aiming. I was just all over the place. And uh, and so my dad uh, just said, look, we we can't we can't handle you anymore. We can't take care of you. This is too difficult. You're going to have to move. You're going to have to go back to the East Coast and live with your mom. It's
0: right at the end of high school.
1: I'm I'm halfway through my senior year. So the second time that I felt that feeling, I felt in the gas station, I felt it when I started working in a parking lot in Boston, Hmm. where it was the exact same feeling of like, oh, I get this. I can do this. I know how to make this work. And I immediately assumed a lot of responsibility in a parking lot in Boston because I was going to college. I ended up getting into college and almost immediately flunking out of college Huh. And now, and then I was like, okay, I got this wired and I'm working in the gas station in the parking lot. I'm making a lot of money. Yeah. I like got 12 different side hustles going on. It's yeah. all good. And then that came to a sudden halt when some guy tried to, well, some guy stabbed me. He tried to rob me and he stabbed me. So then I was like, oh shit. So now I end up in the hospital in Boston and I'm there for like three weeks good God. trying to re- get my shit together. Now I've flunked out of college and been stabbed and I'm not even 20 years old. Right. And, uh, it's so freezing I, Boston. It's free. I was stabbed in November. So I missed the winter. I missed yeah. the last winter in the parking lots in Boston, which was really not great. Yeah. So just as things to miss, you don't want to work in a parking lot in Boston in the winter
0: <laughs> you know, <laughs> with flesh wounds.
1: So, uh, I missed that, but I didn't miss much else. I got really, really you know, I, I saw all of it. And, uh, So anyways, I end up back home. I've been stabbed. I've flunked out of college. I've been stabbed. I'm back home living with my mom. And my mom's just like, well, I don't know what. I don't even know what to do. I don't know what happens to you. Now, do you go back to college? That's not a good idea. What are you going to do? And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And my grandfather, who had been this, you know, calls me. And he said, well, are you ready to stop fucking up your life? And I said, you know, I I think I am. I think so. He said, because I... Friend of mine is the, you know, runs the William Morris agency. And um I can get you an interview there. And will you you have to just you have to get a suit and tie and you have to be polite. (laughs) You have to say yes, sir, and no, sir, and like that. I said, Okay, I can do that. And I I drove into William Morris agency and I met with this man, Matt Leftwitz. He was an elder fellow at the time, and uh he just was, you know, I don't even really know what he said. Something like I mean, you're interested in working here? And I was like, yes, sir. He said, do you think you can run? Yeah. And I was like, yes, sir. And he said, okay. And I don't remember what happened exactly after that. But the next thing I know I was starting in the mailroom at the William Morris agency. And wow. again, that was the third time gas station, parking lot mailroom where I was like, Oh, I can do this. Huh. It was literally like throwing a duck in the water for the first time. I was right. like, I got this. Yeah. I can figure it out. And You know, I was like, I was, even though I was a terrible student, I was a good reader and I'd always loved storytelling and, you know, I liked movies, but I wasn't like a freak about pop culture, but suddenly it was just this great environment for me. Hmm. And, uh, and that was it. That was almost 40 years ago.
0: And you've been in, uh, in the agency business ever since. since. how how long were you at William Morris and then?
1: I was at at William Morris for about five years or so. I I was uh, out of the mailroom by the time I was, I think, 20 or 21. Wow. Um, And uh, I I was doing pretty well, getting a lot of attention. But then uh, my mentor at the time the guy I was working for moved. He was running the the, the movie department at the William Morris Agency in New York, Hmm. which is, you know... Considering there's no movie business in New York, it was sort of an empty position. And he moved out to California and uh, he couldn't take me with him. Hmm. And so I was sort of left in New York. Well, What am I going to do now? And then uh, Hmm. ICM had been trying to hire me and uh, I agreed to move over to ICM and be the guy in charge of selling the movie rights to the books that were being represented by ICM. So I moved out here in 1984.
0: So, can you talk to me a little bit just about obviously the the industry has changed as all do over the last 40 years, but kind of basic bullet points in your line of work. What what qualities separate the truly superb agents from just the good ones?
1: You know, get asked that question a lot, like what makes a great agent? And it's not always as simple as there's this one defining characteristic because different agents, great agents can show up with it, but with different characteristics. There is, for some, uh, it's a really, I mean, I think you have to have some passion or uh, capability or touch for the product. Hmm. You know, you have to be able to access, you know, you can't just think, ah, this is all shit. You got to really like or love movies and television. You have to have some part of you that understands there's an aspirational element of being an artist. And you have to identify with that aspirational element of of being an artist. Um, So I think that's important. I think you have to be able to connect to some degree or another with the pain of being an artist. You know, Um, I think you have to really You know, you can't be afraid of hard work. You got to be willing to show up every single day and and go and repeat certain behavior in order to achieve success. Um,
0: What part of what part of your work gives you the most anxiety? What aspect?
1: You know, I don't really have a lot of anxiety anymore. The part of it that used to give me anxiety was really related to the homework. Hmm. You know, that idea that there was so much reading to do and so much you needed to know. And if you didn't do it, who was going to do and it? And if I didn't and I had to do all this reading and I had to be, keep up and I had to know what was going on and that idea that there's just an ocean of information and if you if you don't know what's going on, you're going to be caught a, a you know, you, you, things can go wrong. Yeah. And, uh, so the anxiety part is just, you know, it really comes from, do I know everything I need to know? Am I on top of it?
0: Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you like to hire? How do you, how do you, how do you seek out those people that have the potential of those traits? I mean, obviously I think of the entertainment industry in Hollywood as kind of the big porch light, that all every all the moths all around the world kind of attract you and, and, and always have and you know I know in the mail room it's a grueling process and you got to earn your stripes and kind of those still standing after the first year that windows it down a little right. bit a little bit but um, how uh, how do you like to hire quality people who you think have legs for a
1: 30-year career well I you know I started the training program at ICM and then started the training program here and and for the first 10 years of the agency, I think I hired almost every single person, you know, and hired everyone in the training program. And I loved it. And, you know, Mm -hmm. there's like a chapter in some book called the mail room about, yeah, called my kids and my interviewing process. Cause I, what I used to love to do was try to get the, get them talking about movies and television and books that they loved. And why, because to me, the most important part was, can you communicate can you effectively communicate your thoughts? Because uh, in the, in the job we have, you're trying to effectively communicate about how a book or movie or TV show or performance made you feel right. How you connected with it. Cause that's how you're going to get somebody else interested in it. Right. Right. And so I was always very interested in people's ability to communicate about what they why what they loved and why huh. so that was really important to me um and then i would also look for you know i wanted to find the blemish you know you see those re- a lot of the times i'd see a resume just this per- these perfect resumes i was like where's the where's the struggle right what did you overcome and for me with my own bias because to me i felt what i overcame was a big part of my story no doubt and so I wanted to, and I also had a huge chip on my shoulder, right? Like if any, like anytime I saw a resume with like Harvard on, I was like, Oh, which Harvard is that? Is that the one out in Cambridge? Like I always had a chip on my shoulder about the Ivy league guys who didn't really fight, you know, blah, 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 blah. But really that was just my shit because yeah. those guys work really, really hard to get something. Yeah. And I didn't, and I, in a weird way, couldn't. So I always had a little bit of a, you know, weird thing with that. But, you know, so I, I would try to create in the mailroom a, a, a mixture of people. It's like those guys who just always achieved everything. Yep. And then I wanted to get the one guy who's like, you know, went to University of Arizona for two years and then took two years off. Yeah. And then got his degree at Loyola. I was like, okay, you just couldn't handle the fucking partying at University of Arizona <laughs> and you f- bam- bombed out and then you had to yeah. get your shit together. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I was looking for like the truth of the journey that, you know, yeah. as I always say to people, I, I like to read the white part of the page, you know, and I, I think it's really important that people learn to read the white part of the page. Is there kind of a
0: tactic of, of interview questions to figure out that blemish?
1: Well, sometimes it's tactical and sometimes it is straight up. Just evident. Like, so <laughs> yeah. what happened? You just, you know, smoked way too much weed and you couldn't handle it. Yeah. You know, and you ask somebody that in an interview and they're like. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right. But the ones that own it and then the ones that are able to communicate their passion sincerely
1: are pretty good luck or the ones who I, you know, who just maybe they don't even know it because that's the other thing is you can go through this life early stage of your life where no one will say something honestly to you. I'm not sure. Especially here where people won't say, you know what? You've never really lived up to your own potential. Mm -hmm. And are you ready? Mm -hmm. And I've said that to to people in the area, are you ready to actually live up to your potential? Or do you want to continue? Because basically for me, do you want to be a classic underachiever? Someone said that to me and I was like, yeah, okay, I got that. I'm a classic underachiever. There was kind of a cool bravado in that. Like, hey, I could do better. I just don't want to. You know, but there's a point where you got to stop wearing that coat because that coat's going to hurt you. Do you feel people
0: uh, still, before they kind of prove themselves, really know the capacity of their own potential? Because I feel like, Anybody would say, of course, I'm ready to live up to my potential in a job interview. And maybe it's a little bit of bluster, but it seems to me the, the, what little mileage I've had in the experience of life, few people really know what they truly offer.
1: Right. But most people, if they can be honest with themselves, know what they're not offering. Ah. If you can be honest with yourself, say, you know what? I've never really I've never really done my best. I've never really shown up 100%. Mm-hmm. You know, and now suddenly here you are in an interview where you want to say yes, I of course, da, 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 but when confronted with the truth of wow, this is a moment in my life where I can decide to tra- change the trajectory, huh. where I can rewrite the the diagnosis of classic underachiever and become. You know, the best version of myself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, sometimes in interview processes, you want to try to, you know, you want to give people you want to get see if people are really ready to look inside and say, Yeah, you know what, this is a moment where I'm ready to, to change, mm-hmm. ready to really do something. And, you know, who knows whether that actually ever worked. But uh, right. it was important for me because no one ever said that to me. Mm-hmm.
0: Coffee with the Greats is brought to you by a truly great coffee, Bixby Coffee. Bixby Coffee is roasted and shipped the same day you order it for the freshest, most convenient coffee you can find. Now, I genuinely believe Bixby is the perfect coffee to brew at home because I founded the company, and over the years, we've worked very hard to perfect the home coffee experience. I've been a coffee guy my whole life. And I've learned that no matter how you make your coffee, you always want the freshest roasted beans possible. So any coffee that's sitting on a grocery store shelf is inevitably going to be more stale than coffee that's been roasted and shipped directly to you the same day. Not only is our coffee insanely fresh, but it's made of the highest quality, sustainably sourced beans from around the world. Go to BixbyCoffee.com to discover the finest coffee blends in single origins. We offer whole bean, fresh ground, Keurig pods, and even specialty instant coffee. And if you live in the U.S., shipping is always free. Use code GREATS for 30% off your first order. That comes to less than 10 bucks to have the freshest coffee you've ever made delivered right to your home. This is the good stuff. I promise. That's BixbyCoffee.com. B-I-X-B-Y-Coffee.com. Back to the conversation. So for someone who's immensely connected, as the CEO of the largest talent agencies in the world, but then also chapter Jeremy's Children, you gave so many people their start. How When, when you meet someone who impresses you, what personal systems do you have in place to maintain a connection? Just in general, are you, are you, will you, will you give a phone call every day? Do you send out holiday cards? Do you even care about keeping all those contacts active? How do you, uh, if someone, if someone inspires your imagination, how do you maintain a connection?
1: You know, I don't have any organized system. Huh? I did the holiday card thing for first, before I got married. I used to get all those holiday cards from people and their happy families. And I'm like a divorced guy with one kid yeah. getting these happy cards. I'm like, Oh, how, you know, I was like, I was resentful. Sure. Like oh, all you people showing off your happy family. So then I got married and had all these kids. So I'm, like, I'm sending out the happy family cards. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the original analog Instagram. Post. Exactly. <laughs> but I didn't, you know, I don't, I don't really know how I stay connected. You know, to me, I don't, I manage to develop relationships and make connections with people and it all feels very natural to me. I don't really have a system or anything like that. Um, you know, I'm busy. Yeah. So I have the stuff I have to do and this, the, the relationships I need to maintain in the day. And then I have a sort of a, a desire of, you know, I have like a, where am I trying to get to and how am I trying to do that? So as the CEO, you've got sort of, you've, you've got your, your, you know, you're looking at a template of acquisitions, you know, strategic initiatives, where you're going. Mm-hmm. And then you've got your operational responsibilities, which is where you are and how you make sure you're maximizing the day you're in while at the same time moving towards the vision. Yeah. And moving towards vision has a lot to do with, you know, pursuing acquisitions, pursuing new hires developing new business lines, making sure you have financing available to pursue all those initiatives, while at the same time, the operational side is making sure the people you have are feeling good or doing what they need to do, making sure that, the, that people are working in a collaborative, cooperative, and entrepreneurial way yeah. within the ecosystem, managing the culture, which is really, really important. So you know, there's a lot going on within that definition. And then beyond that, uh, you know, I, I think mean, people tend to do what feels good. So if you have relationships that you get a lot out of, you'll tend to nurture those and pursue those.
0: That is a lot on the docket for a CEO, especially for one who doesn't feel the pangs of anxiety all that much. I mean, that's extraordinary. So can we talk just a little bit, just about daily habits and kind of how you arrive at that? What, what time do you usually wake up in the morning?
1: I wake up sometime between four thirty and five every morning. Automatically. Automatically.
0: And are there certain certain things that you like to do before you get into the office?
1: By the time I get in the office I've had a full day. You yeah. know? What's what's the routine? So I get up in the morning uh, early between four thirty and five. I uh, check my email, check my fantasy basketball. Nice. Uh, have a cup of coffee, read the paper. Hold on hold on. Just
0: just step by step. Is your phone on your bedside? So your phone's the very first thing you look at in the morning.
1: Yeah, and I use my phone as my not my alarm clock, but my sleep measure or whatever that is. Right, right. I don't know why I like <laughs> yeah. to measure my sleep. Yeah, what's that data telling you? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's telling me I was asleep.
0: <laughs>
1: Duly noted. <laughs> um, and then you're up. You're reading the news. How do you? How do you like I wake up on. I wake up. I will wake up at exactly the same time every morning for three months in a row. Wow. And then it'll reset to another time. Yeah. And that'll go for like months and then it'll reset to another time. And there's no rhyme or reason, but it's always between like 4.30 and five. So it'll be like 4.13. I'll wake up at 4.13 for three months and then I'll click over to 4.48 and that'll go on for a while. And then it'll click over to the, it's just so weird.
0: And is your mind fairly
1: still early or does it immediately set off to the races? I'm up. Yeah. I mean, it's not racing, but it's like, okay, what are we doing? Let's go. Okay. You know, but I've been doing this for a long time. Uh, sure. So these are real habits that are ingrained, you know, and I do the thing, go down, have a cup of coffee, read the paper, then I work out. Then you read I go, a physical paper? Uh, no, not anymore. I read it. Even though I get the physical paper delivered, I still read. I read the New York Times. Okay. Digitally. Yeah. Um, and then I get into my exercise routine and okay. then uh, four mornings a week or so I go to an AA meeting, Alcoholics Anonymous, and, uh, which I've been doing for about 22 years. Then I come back and get ready and go to work. Yeah. Are there,
0: and so, in so there's no real to do list system, so to speak, or those are kind of the, the bigger things that you only step into once you get into the office.
1: Well, I make a, I mean, during that time I'm sending out a lot of emails, right. receiving a lot of, I mean, sending out a lot of emails and usually making phone calls in between. So as I'm writing, As I'm going to my meeting in the morning, 640 or so, I'm calling office in London or the office in New York um, and, you know, beginning the day, you know, whatever those international calls or East Coast calls are. And that all sort sort of gets rolling. And then uh, at the same time, I'm returning emails, initiating emails, making outgoing calls, trying to get the day started. What am I trying to put in play for the day?
0: And is it important to you to have kind of a cultural media diet? Um, I mean, uh, obviously, this is very much the, the hub of pop culture, but actually, um, the question I really want to ask is, what, what, what kind of culture do you turn to to get out of your head and kind of keep you grounded every now and then? What kind of culture? I mean I know I know you have a I mean I'm an art collector art and I love
1: my art but it's not like I'll go look at my art for an hour to
0: answer the big questions about yeah, life no, right right, like, right
1: you know I I I just I just roll yeah. I mean this is my culture this is what this job and this thing I do combined with my family are the two most powerful influences in my life and the two things that bind me to the earth hmm you know between the rigor of working every day and having this job and the discipline that that imposes on me and the rigor and passion and and love that I get from my family and the I don't want to say rigor but the the habits that that requires yeah. is pretty good you know and then I try and work out a little bit so I don't you know so my my physical being will continue to function <laughs>
0: At home, what is kind of what is the what's the dad special? Do you have like a meal you make for your children or you, or you do you make like a killer breakfast or omelet? Like Honestly,
1: I used to be I used to in my mind I was a pretty good cook and then uh, we got to, I got married and we had these kids and my wife and I was kind of like, I'm a real you know I'm a really good cook so yeah yeah <laughs> I make a bunch of things really well I make an unbelievable boysenberry pie i told her she said really <laughs> how
0: about something yeah i
1: make an incredible boysenberry she said, okay and when I said, i'm gonna make you boysenberry pie and i da, da da, and i go and you know of course i don't know anything about it i get a you know I don't even frozen berries frozen pie crust i get some boysenberries da, 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 and i make but i forget to put sugar in it and it's really like the worst thing I <laughs> ever tasted and since then i don't really i'm not really allowed to cook <laughs> like, got it Basically, I can make a toad in the hole, which I get to make like when we're like on Christmas vacation, Christmas break or whatever. When I'm home in the morning, I'll make a toad in the hole. And that's about as far as I'm allowed to do. That's pretty advanced. I thought it was pretty good. I'm I'm proud of that. (laughs) Other,
0: uh, Other than telling them, how do you let your children know that you love them?
1: I mean, we're a very, uh, you know, we do a lot of snuggling in my house. You know, there's a lot of, you know, hugging, kissing, you know. It's a very, uh, I think it's a really warm and loving environment. and uh, That's the way I tell them and the way I show them. But the most important way I tell them and show them is I do exactly. I do what I say I'm going to do. To me, that is the most important you know that's how i show the people in my life that i love them hmm. is i do what i say i'm going to do i keep my commitments you know i tell the truth and i keep my commitments and that's how i show people that i love cuz that's the measure of you know that's like that's how you create safety and yeah. and warmth and love through honesty and consistency
0: and talk is cheap
1: Talk is cheap. And, you know, I I grew up where with a lot of talk and not a lot of people doing what they said they were going to do.
0: Yeah. Getting back to the theme you said earlier, what is the most difficult choice you've had to make personally to fulfill your destiny?
1: Well, I think, you know, not the but the choice, the decision that I made around drugs and alcohol, the awareness that the decision to accept the fact that I was an alcoholic and the decision to commit to recovery. Hmm. I don't really look at it as a difficult decision. It must've been considering how long I avoided it Mm -hmm. in the face of all the evidence. Um, And then the decision to stop rationalizing behavior that I knew was not good for me.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, the decision to keep my commitments, do what I say I'm going to do, show up when I don't want to, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: you know, which, which to a lot of people just sounds like what everybody does, right? But for me in my life, that was a big deal. Do you, do you feel that,
0: um, given what you just said, that, that the stigma around struggles with alcohol or addictions in this day and age is slowly evaporating?
1: You know, I don't really know because the community I'm in, it's the stigma doesn't seem to be as significant, although, you know. I don't know whether, you know, in in a uh, environment of all CEOs, whether the stigma is more real or not. I don't know whether at some point, you know, people who are aware of, uh, you know, my history might, you know, I might not be considered for a board or considered for an opportunity before as a result of it. I have no idea. I have no way of knowing. But look, I think that a lot of people... Understand it. And then the problem is a lot of people who acknowledge their disease then continue to struggle with it and go in and out and up and down. And, right. and so people don't necessarily have a lot of trust for the fact that people can and do recover.
0: Right. It, it does seem that in the era of hyper-sharing in social media, that so many different, what what were formerly taboos, uh you know my my younger sister died from an addiction and it was also it things were so tied in but depression and and the shame i know that we felt as a family even mentioning depression to mm-hmm. people and it was was really um really really difficult and then when you do speak to someone or you feel like it's safe to talk to an, an incredible connection is formed um but so much of the kind of imprisonment is almost self-imposed by not just being able to communicate and talk about it.
1: You know, I really believe that people can change, but I really believe I can't change them. Yeah. And that's a very hard road to walk because a lot of times I'll work with someone or, or love someone. Who I really want to change, who I really think could change, should change, and will be so much better off and happier if they do change. But you can't do it, but I can't change them. And I can't, my wanting them to change is going to be a very little effect. And that's, and that can be really hard. So I'll stake my conviction on that, which is two sided, unbelievably optimistic in that I really believe people can change and do change and, and brutally realistic which is I can't change it and humble yeah those two things live right next door to each other
0: that's interesting that's a great answer do you think there's a purpose to celebrity and if so what 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 is what is that purpose i mean you're you're surrounded by quote unquote famous people what is what is not what the power but what is the purpose of celebrity
1: the purpose i don't know what the purpose of celebrity is but i think what Celebrity does is it gives a lot of topspin to ideas and opportunities and creativity and, uh, great behavior and bad behavior and, uh, you know, celebrity becomes the sort of delivery agent for a lot of things, you know,
0: for better, for worse, is it? do you feel like it's gotten more amped up since your early days at William
1: Morris? Well, I think the whole, you know, the acceleration of culture and the way culture is sort of accelerated in everywhere. You know, it's just optimized across every channel all the time. You're constantly exposed. Everybody's always looking at something. Yeah. You know, you can't be in an elevator or in a car or waiting in a bus stop or in a doctor's office or anywhere without, you know, a rock screen showing you something now you can decide to open up an app that you know is going to serve you celebrity crap or you can decide to open up an app that'll show you the news or you can decide to open up an app that'll help you meditate or you can decide to open up an app that will you know plug you into the greatest you know the greatest ideas in the world right or you can put all that in a safe for four hours or you put it all <laughs> in a safe for four
0: hours exactly um what do you think the world is craving right now
1: Um, the world. Well, I think there's so many different worlds, right? I think there's a bunch of people in the world who are craving just safety, safety from the environment. You know, what's the next cyclone that's going to come and, and Mm. destroy our village and, Mm. and poison our water and, uh, you know, kill us. So there's that part of the world. And, uh, I, don't know, I think that I think we're all craving sort of like jesus what what's going on? Where are we going, and how fast are we getting there? Answers. yeah yeah and 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 safety, yeah, yeah, I think we all want to feel safer,
0: so on that note what's what's your prayer for your children and what is your prayer for this country?
1: My prayer for my children is that they, you know, grow up, uh, they grow up safe and they grow up with a sense of the importance of, of commitment and, and self-esteem, you know, to me self-esteem for everyone. I want to, I was about to say particularly for girls, but for everyone is the most powerful fuel is the opposite of empty calories. Hmm. And I think the way you develop self-esteem is by doing esteemable acts. And esteemable acts are as simple as making your bed, doing what you say you're gonna do, keeping your commitments, telling the truth. Yeah. You know, I want my kids to have self-esteem. Um, and my prayer for the world is that we, you know, try and, you know, how can we make it a safer place?
0: Yeah. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Coffee with the Greats. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to this podcast so that the next episode will appear magically on your phone when it comes out. And check out Bixby Coffee to discover a better way to brew at home. Use code Grates for 30% off your first order and free shipping at BixbyCoffee, B-I-X-B-Y, coffee.com.